9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from Cambridge, Massachusetts today in a small attic in a haunted house. And it is my pleasure today to have a discussion that I think is urgently needed, but with great guests. Of course, since it's uh, Thursday, when we're recording this, I am joined by my co-host, Dr. Kavita Patel of the Brookings Institution, a practicing physician and former head of health policy in the Obama White House. How are you doing today, Kavita? Oh, peachy keen. Very excited about our guest today. And the guest she is excited about is Dahlia Lithwick, extremely well-known and respected writer on legal issues, senior legal editor at Slate, host of the Slate podcast on, on legal issues called Amicus. Welcome, Dahlia. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I'm psyched to talk to both of you. Well, we're psyched to talk to you. And also, in 15 or 20 minutes, we'll be joined by our friend Barb McQuaid to continue our discussions. Let me begin with this. The uh, Supreme Court, I guess it was last week, rocked the world with a decision. I think it came out around midnight one night in which they determined that they would not challenge the Texas law that effectively prohibits abortion in Texas. You can't do it outside of six weeks, but it has some interesting, and by interesting, I mean horrible twists such as offering, you know, a $10,000 bounty to anybody who reports someone who has uh, has an abortion, which takes us really into Handmaid's Tale territory, I, I think. Today, shortly before we began this podcast, the Justice Department of the United States announced that they would be challenging this law uh, on the basis of its constitutionality, suggesting that the right to an abortion is an established constitutional right. But it was pretty vague in terms of how they were going to go about this. Where does that put us on all this, Dahlia? In the near term, I think it puts us where we need to be, which is Merrick Garland and the Justice Department taking a bold and decisive stand against states nullifying federal constitutional rights. So I think it was necessary. I I think you're quite right. It's making really bold declarations about the scope of the supremacy clause and what states can do and what states cannot do with respect to constitutional rights. I I think in a weird way, it throws us right back into the soup of this will, whether or not Texas is enjoined. This is going to make its way up to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, the notorious Fifth Circuit that was the one that blessed the Texas law SB8 the first go round and back in the soup in that eventually it makes its way back up to the Supreme Court. So I I guess the short version of what I'm saying is it's a sad and pernicious comment on where we are that we're running back to the courts. 
the courts that are just fundamentally and deeply and profoundly stacked with Trump appointees who are so absolutely dedicated to this sort of federalist society program of doing away with Roe, doing away with LGBTQ rights, doing away with basically the last century and a half of progress in America. So the fact that the courts are both the solution and the problem tells you an awful lot about what it means to be filing a lawsuit right now. Well, let's not let Sam Alito off the hook or Clarence Thomas, for that matter. The Bush administrations have given us some pretty lousy justices, too. That's true. And it's probably worth noting that both Alito and Thomas signed off on the the mystery order, the late night order that came (laughs) at midnight last week. And as you say, that's the refusal to enjoin the Texas case. They, They couldn't even get Chief Justice John Roberts to go along, an avowed hater of abortion rights. For him, even this was a bridge too far to do it on what's called the shadow docket in the middle of the night with a paragraph of unreasoned, unsigned analysis. So I think it's quite right that you've got a real split here between the all-in faction of the Roberts court and John Roberts, who votes with the liberals, who had this case percolated up on a normal docket, had it been briefed and argued, I think would have happily been on board to do away with Roe, just not this way, not unseemly, not in the dark of night. Kavita, this is not just a disturbing legal development. It's a disturbing moral development for the country. It's also disturbing public health development because, in fact, this law, as close to bans abortion as you can get, including abortion of the product of a rape, abortions that put a mother's health in jeopardy. And if this plays out, as Dahlia intimated it might, and it goes up to the Fifth Circuit, and it goes up to the Supreme Court, and it gets blessed again, other states are going to follow suit, right? This is going to be an epidemic across the country. What do you think the consequences of that will be? I mean, so I have to be honest, if I stood back and looking at the language and being the non-legal person with you, David, here. So I'll defer to Dahlia and Barb uh, when she comes on. It is incredible how smart it was to put the language in SB8 such that they didn't trip like some of the normal, I mean, this isn't the first time that not just the state of Texas, but that other states haven't obviously tried to limit access. And usually that playbook comes in the form of these really onerous and punitive requirements that become so burdensome that just being an abortion provider is one, not tenable. And number two, like something that becomes like akin to, you know, poking your eyes out on a daily basis. And so that's been the playbook. This kind of twist with, as you describe it accurately, a bounty, turning the public, not violating by having it be kind of, you know, any regulated, you know, this isn't state people, they're not touching it. These are John Q. Public uh, can report on anything that seems ill-advised. And then also, interestingly enough, since I'm from Texas and you know Texas well, this is maybe the first time there's so many firsts about this in the language and elegance to get around what had been the traditional playbook. The second thing that was something that struck me, um, and then I'll get to your moral kind of public health crisis question. This is the first time I've actually seen the Texas Medical Association be so emphatically against 
restrictions on providers. I've never seen it. The Texas Medical Association, which theoretically is a state chapter of the American Medical Association, but it's not because everything's big in Texas. So it's a very independently minded, very conservative organization that has fought to generally kind of keep the power amongst physicians and then keep regulation out. But when it comes to conservative values and policies has usually not argued much. It's been amazing to watch that organization come out full force along with a host of other physician organizations saying that this is not only a violation of patient and physician's relationship, but it infringes on the very ability to like kind of do our jobs as doctors. And that gets to your public health point. I have always worried about a scenario, David, where um, a governor like this, a legislature like this, and a, a court system that's stacked like this one appears to be makes it difficult to do anything for what's deemed to be part of a society that they want to candidly isolate, violate, incriminate, discriminate. I have worried during the entire Trump administration, David, I won't lie, and coming up on the anniversary of 9-11, thought it would be Muslims. Like I thought there would be a way that, you know, there could be carve-outs for treating um, and being creative about that language for people who identified as Muslims. I thought that it might be around LGBT. And, and we have seen that, by the way. So we have seen that with transgender and people, I think, who have been largely marginalized in many of these states with bathroom signs. But now I have this added fear that it's going to be an it's not just an attack on women's bodies. I mean, it's incredible and incredulous to me that I could have somebody telling me what to do. And I just want to like the final thing I'll say is that I have yet to meet a pregnant woman who would probably fit all of the criteria six weeks from the first day of your last menstrual period. There's script that's required to go along with that, the need to have an ultrasound and kind of show the findings. And I have yet to meet a woman that actually could even come in under those insane requirements. And so it just shows you that people can literally write a pen on violating women's rights in a way that I frankly didn't think possible. And, and it just it brings kind of our society to an all new low. And, and I hope Dahlia is right about Merrick Garland. You know, we had just talked about Merrick Garland's failures around January 6th, David. And man, I am hoping that this is a 180. And by the way, I'll just add as a side note, this is a chance, you know, Kamala Harris has been stuck with all these like bastard initiatives that I feel like they're going to go nowhere. <laughs> this is an initiative she should charge and charge hard on because if there's a one woman who can do it in that White House, it's her. Yeah, totally agree on that last point. Dahlia, I've been talking to a bunch of people who are court watchers, close to the court. Unanimously, they feel Roe v. Wade is dead. They feel that this court is going to kill it, that they will find a way to kill it. This may be the way. There may be other ways. But the whole charade, the Susan Collins charade, of, well, this is established law and we're not going to get to this, is going to be revealed and not 10 years from now. It's going to be revealed in the year ahead. This is going to be over and they're going to do other things. And we'll get to the other things shortly, but you're closer to all this than I am. So are the people I'm talking to right or wrong? I think they're right. I think pretty much we sealed the deal with that when Brett Kavanaugh was seated because he replaced Anthony Kennedy, who was one of the people who saved 
Roe v. Wade, uh, the heart of Roe v. Wade in the Casey decision in 1992, as soon as Brett Kavanaugh came onto the court, it was clear there were going to be five votes. And I think that people make the mistake, David, of thinking that we have to wait around until somebody pens the sentence, Roe v. Wade is overturned. And I think that that's just kind of messing with our heads because it is entirely possible that the court never pens that sentence. And what happened this week in Texas, the second most populous state in the country, is that without writing a word about the merits, in fact, if you look at the hilarious opinion or whatever opinion order that came out refusing to enjoin SB8, they said, oh, there's really good merits questions. We're not presuming to weigh in on the constitutional question. This is just a jurisdictional question. And I think that kind of waving and shrugging and deflecting is what the Roberts Court is really good at. Uh, You know, they don't say we're eviscerating the Voting Rights Act. They just do Shelby County. They don't say, you know, we're ending Roe v. Wade. They just chip away at it. And this is a really good example of We all thought that this was going to happen in the Mississippi case. There's a 15-week case that's not yet calendared, but the court will hear it this year. That would have been the elegant way to do it, right? Just like futz around with the undue burden test and change the language and say, you know, it turns out like unless you're like playing a ukulele on one foot, wearing a top hat, like there's no undue burden. They could have done it that way. So what we saw this week in Texas was really brazen and bold. But I think it's of a piece with a larger movement, which is they were always going to make it impossible, particularly in the states that want to shutter their last clinic or the states that want to make it all but impossible, which is what Texas did. They were always going to shrug and nod and wave their hands around. They just did it much more brazenly and I would say kind of sloppily and ugly than they needed to. And that's the only real question is how ugly can they do it? How backward can they do it? But I don't think there's any question at all that this is a court that has a supermajority, six justices, who have been lifetime opponents of Roe v. Wade and cannot wait to see it ended, whether it comes with the sentence, Roe v. Wade is no longer good law, or whether it just comes with the thousand cuts. You picked up on kind of the notion of this is like the Roberts Court. This is kind of modus operandi. How much of this, because I've followed your work and you know these justices, it does feel like we've now got a Justice Roberts. It feels like one of the good guys. So how much of this is like the Roberts court versus what I feel like I see the Alito, Thomas, and then kind of the cronies of Amy and Brett? What is that dynamic? And are all of us going to learn from the lesson that has been Merrick Garland not getting seated and then Trump having the ability to put in these justices? What's the pressure like on Breyer, as obvious as that is? I don't think he'll retire early. I don't think he'll feel the compunction to do it. Could one of these things be a changing force to make him feel like he needs to? It's, it's a sort of nested series of questions about how they are allowing, I think, us as the public to be really blinkered about what they're really doing. And that's all of a piece. I think that maybe the best answer to it is it's not even the John Roberts court anymore. You know, a year and three days ago (laughs) before the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the, the very hasty replacement with Amy Coney Barrett, we were talking about the Roberts court. He was a decisive, determinative vote. 
he is now immaterial for all intents and purposes, right? The fact that he throws in with the dissenters last week just tells you that what matters now, believe it or not, and we saw this at the end of last term with all the counts that everybody did, the median justice on the current Supreme Court is Brett Kavanaugh. <laughs> He's the decider. And Brett Kavanaugh, just one example, is he was not on any of Donald Trump's shortlists. He worked his way onto Donald Trump's shortlist for a Supreme Court justice gig by writing crazy, crazy stuff in the cases that had to do with the migrant teens in Texas, who they would not allow out of a shelter. Remember, they had they were allowed to have abortions. They had been bypassed. And Kavanaugh starts writing this crazy stuff. And he's like, look at me, look at me. I hate abortion more than anyone. And suddenly he's on the short list. That's our median justice right now. So, you know, we can certainly talk about what Justice Breyer does or doesn't do. We can talk about what John Roberts does to try to kind of control his court. But in some sense, the train has left the station when the median justice is a person who has devoted his whole career to doing away with women's reproductive rights, bracket the things that he's alleged to have done that were never investigated. So I just think like part of the problem is, and this goes back to a little bit where David started with that late night order, because this happened on the shadow docket, because this case was not properly argued and briefed in the lower courts, it was never argued before the Supreme Court, there was no lower court order from which they were working. This happened in the shadows. None of those shadow docket numbers ever manifest in the end of term totals, right? So when you see all these slathering pieces at the end of the term in June, they're like, oh, Amy Coney Barrett's actually super moderate and Brett Kavanaugh's really moderate. And look how many times these were seven to two and they're super, you know, they're super centrist. They don't take into account any of those voting rights cases, the death penalty cases, the COVID limits cases that all happened on the shadow docket. So part of the problem is the story we're peddling in the Supreme Court press about this super centrist Barrett, Kavanaugh, Roberts bump at the center of the court is actually belied by the statistics if you look at all of the orders and not just the handful that come down on the regular docket. Yeah, I don't know what you call that on the amicus podcast, but here we call that bullshit. It's just nonsense. And the degree to which it is bullshit is reflected, I think, in the rage that we saw in the Sotomayor and Kagan dissents. And so I was just wondering if you give us a comment or two on what you think those may be significant of, or, you know, is it just going to be left to the liberal justices to rage for the next few years? You know, like King Lear out on the heath shouting uh, at the storm. Huge props to Justice Sotomayor. By the way, uh, John Roberts did not join on in her dissent because her dissent was just so. But it was amazing. That was like a tour de force. <laughs> it's like I want to print it and carry it with me because it renews my faith in like why we need more Latina women on the Supreme Court. <laughs> she just straight up pants the majority. And she called them liars and she sort of, you know, really accused them of hiding the ball. I mean, the other dissents were very persuasive. You know, Breyer wrote a good one. Kagan wrote a good one. The chiefs was very persuasive. And by the way, there's huge chunks of his language that are peeled off in the, the Justice Department suit that was just filed. They just joyfully um, quote John Roberts back to Texas. 
But I think it's true that Sotomayor is the only one who just goes after them for being untruthful and for being fatuous with their logic. And uh, the chief justice doesn't join her. I think that to me, one of the real through lines here, and I I hate to sound like a strident feminist, but I'm going to do it anyway. Remember when Sotomayor was nominated by Obama, the, the rap on her was like, she's not super smart. She's got a temper. You remember? It was really racially loaded. It was very, very ugly. She has proven to be one of the very few people on this minority kind of wing of the court who just calls it racist when it's racist and who just calls it sexist when it's sexist. And it's so interesting to me that she has become on the liberal wing of the court, the person most apt to just say, y'all just suck and you're lying. And it's funny to me that to come full circle, that this was dismissed as somebody not very savvy. She is such a savvy writer in terms of understanding what the public needs to hear, that they just need somebody to hear beyond the hagiography and self-preservation and decorousness of the court. And when she pantses them, it is like a sight to behold because she's just not afraid to call it. I was in the White House when she was going through her nomination process and Stephanie Cutter was leading her kind of like nomination process and Stephanie would show clips of some of the press. And I was stunned having met her through that process very peripherally and now watching her. I think the history books will be written, already started, that she is going to be the inspiration for what I think a lot of us, it's not that I've lost faith in the court, but Dahlia, your point about Kavanaugh, I've never heard it so succinctly put, Kavanaugh being kind of the median, that is depressing. That is like so depressing and and so many like emotions that Sotomayor is like one of the few reasons to kind of keep hope alive, I guess. And, and, and just that tactic of Kavanaugh's, I remember now the Texas, I remember the kind of border cases with children and, and other and adults. And it just speaks to how I'm incredibly, it just makes my skin crawl. If we lose the midterms, which we look like we will, what this could get set up for, for even a potential Biden nominee at some point in the future and how difficult that's going to be. Can I say one other thing that I guess I'd be interested in hearing you reflect on for a second, Kavito, which is, you know, you, you talked about, and David talked about just how cunning SB 8 is in terms of kind of conscripting citizens to go after bounties. And by the way, that $10,000 is the minimum. Judges can happily award $20,000 and attorney's fees. If you are defending this suit, if you're a provider, you don't collect attorney's fees and you can be subject to suit anywhere in Texas. They can force you to drive to El Paso to defend. All of that notwithstanding, the thing that I've been reflecting on this week is that it's one thing to go after providers, right? That's what you started by saying is that traditionally, even if you went with, you know, the old trap laws and said you have to like put in an HVAC system and you have to widen your corridors and, you know, you have to do all this stuff, which was designed to shutter clinics. Going after the providers is one thing. The thing that hasn't gotten enough attention, I think, is that this goes after the counselors, the high school counselor who talks to you the pastor who counsels you, the Uber driver, the Lyft driver, 
your great aunt, if she knows, you can be tagged for aiding and abetting. You can be tagged for having the intent to aid and abet. So if you know that somebody is contemplating this, you can theoretically, under the language of this law, be tagged. And I raise all this to just say the double cruelty of this law that I think hasn't gotten enough attention is that it chills anybody, including funds that used to help provide, right, to get around the Hyde Amendment transportation for women. Anybody who tries to help is now on the hook. So it's not just the providers. It's the entire network that has grown up to support women in this like vulnerable moment. And I think that the part of the law that is particularly cruel isn't just the sort of vigilantism of saying anybody in Texas, anybody in the country can sue somebody, but that anybody who might want to help, who might have a thought about how to help a woman who, as David said, rape, incest, there's no exceptions. All of those people are chilled. And I think that we haven't fully appreciated the cruelty of a legal regime that not only conscripts everybody in the world to collect a bounty to turn in a woman and not she personally can't actually be sued, but anyone who wants to support her, not just the physician, not just the person who's at the reception, but anyone, they're all on the hook. And that seems to me just extra, extra pernicious. And I'm not sure we fully integrated how awful that is. Yeah, you know, you're right. And a friend of mine who works in a Planned Parenthood clinic, the one, one of the ones that's been profiled in Austin, that's just been so overwhelmed. And she actually reminded me of that. And you're right to bring it up, Dolly, because that in terms of just sheer impact, that might be even more of an important impact because she described it, her words, that this is creating basically the need to have an underground railroad. I mean, we're already kind of doing that because even women who try to talk about their experiences with abortion, which ends up being a really important role, kind of peer support groups, that gets taken down. And the need to have the other piece to your point is she said, and when will this end? She said, will it be even a donor? I'm a, I'm a regular on record donor to Planned Parenthood. Will I be part of that? And, and we talked about the flooding of the hotlines. I think a number of us helped to try to flood some of those hotlines that had been set up. But you know, you take one down and out pops like 10 to 20 more. So that's a great reminder and something that needs to come to light. It'll be interesting to see how Garland kind of takes action on that as well. Yeah, I, I, I would add just as a footnote here that the position of the Republican Party on these things is not only are there no exceptions, but that rape victim whose child might imperil the life of the mother or who's an incest victim or something else, if she then, you know, this law keeps her to have the child, they don't want to provide health care for that child. They don't want to help that mother with the costs if she's poor. They don't want to do anything to enhance the life of that child once it's born. The level of cruelty, you know, on this is not only off the charts, but it's manifold. It's cruelty in multiple forms. And as I said, let me just rephrase the question. Dahlia, is there any chance that the Justice Department succeeds? That given the constellation of the Supreme Court as, as it's currently established, that 
Roe v. Wade survives? I think there's a decent chance, at minimum, that this DOJ filing results in some kind of injunction. I think that on the merits, this is correct. You know, the whole theory of the of the Justice Department's case is that you can't circumvent federal constitutional laws by making it impossible to sue like that. It's it's just wrong. And then raises all the sort of specter of what and, and cites a whole bunch of civil rights cases to say, you know, states can't just nullify federal constitutional rights. I think on the merits, they're correct. I think whether it becomes this case that is eventually the vehicle to end Roe, whether it's the Mississippi case that's barreling down upon us, uh, whether it's the case that comes after that, I don't think that, as you said, we're 10 years away from fundamentally losing the right to terminate a pregnancy in America. I think that's coming. I think there are, as I said, not five, but six, generally speaking, votes for that if it's done in a seemly manner and not this kind of sloppy manner that the chief justice doesn't like. So then I think the real question is, you know, if it gets returned to the states and if, you know, we have blue states and red states and states, as you know, like Texas, with these shocking infant mortality rates and these shocking maternal death rates, I mean, it's going to simply be the case that there will be one America in which abortion is easy and you can get a medication abortion and it's done by telemedicine and you're in California and another America where you will die in childbirth because nothing could be done. And I think we're heading very, very quickly into that. Don't forget how many states only have one functioning clinic. And I just think what's really tragic here is that, as you said, if this was in fact a party that vaunted and celebrated life, then there would be, you know, across the boards, dedication to healthcare and to, you know, childcare and all the things that would make mothers and children have good health and life outcomes. But that's not what this is. This really does feel like Gilead. And I think that there's enough people on the Supreme Court who can blinker themselves to those outcomes who just really believe that every abortion in America is a sin. And I use that word advisedly with the understanding that these are ultimately theological arguments that are holding sway at the court. And I think it's just incredibly worrisome that it's going to be done in this kind of slapdash, sloppy, late night shadow docket fashion, because it means that most of the American public are not going to have the opportunity to fully track and understand what's going on. This is not an accident that it's happening in midnight at midnight during the summer recess of the court. This is the court very, very carefully playing the public and laying down a bet that the public isn't exactly sure what's happening under our noses. Where do we go from here? If what can be done? So what we sitting and waiting for Merrick Garland doesn't feel like something that gives me comfort. Many of us on the provider side have been trying to mobilize, but Dahlia, just speak very kind of bluntly. This feels like it's all trapped up in the courts other than what I've considered, which is more legislative action at the federal level. Is that like something to continue to push for? What would you recommend we do? Where do we exert our energy sitting around? Should we be setting up an underground railroad? It is already set up, but should we be extending that? What do we do? Uh, it's a great question. And I, my, my 
answer is just that boring old systems answer, that this is a reflection of a decades-long effort to buy and capture a court to preserve minority rule in a whole bunch of ways, right? I mean, the, the outcomes in Texas in no way are congruent with public polling, which does not feel that abortion should be stopped at six weeks. This is what happens when you have a voting rights system that's imperiled, a minority rule system, the filibuster, you know, the, a, a completely malapportioned Senate, Supreme Court justices who are appointed by minority, by presidents who win the minority of votes and then confirmed by a malapportioned Senate. This is what happens when minority rule is effectuated at every level of government. This is red states that have captured the state houses. It's not an accident that the t same day this abortion law went into, into effect, the Texas voter suppression law <laughs> went into effect. I mean, these are not happening by accident. And so I think it is just a concerted effort to look at structural court reform and have courts that reflect <laughs> American values and not the values of less than a third of the population. Massive Senate reform, filibuster reform, massive reform of, you know, and attention to how we vote and how state houses are captured. And that goes to all the other boring stuff about the census and, you know, apportionment. But I think these are structural breakdowns and they are breakdowns that I'm afraid the left has been a little bit asleep at the switch. A little, a little. You're very gentle. Well, I could uh, say bullshit, but yeah, right, right. <laughs> we don't say that. But you're that. very <laughs> gentle on the left on that. And the one other thing that you can do is Google who is giving money to these politicians and don't give those companies any money. And the list is pretty appalling and it's there. I saw, I saw a list of it. There are a lot of big corporations that are supporting the politicians that are doing this. And if the politicians don't get the money, it does have an effect. Now, I've got one last question. It's not just abortion. And I, I hate to end on a down note, but we can't help it. Dahlia, in the course of the next five minutes or so, you know, that we've got, talk a little bit about what else having this extremist majority on the court is going to do. For, you know, I've, I've heard, for example, Second Amendment issues, and I know there's some Second Amendment cases, uh, but what, what's what you know what, what's giving you night sweats? Just the way I freak Kavita out about Kavanaugh being the median justice. I think Richard Posner did a study. This is even before the Trump justices came on, and in it showed that of the ten most conservative justices since the New Deal. Four were sitting on the current Supreme Court, and that was before Antonin Scalia died. And Anthony Kennedy, by the way, was, I think, 11 or 12. So this is the most conservative court we've had in 100 years. And now that's been really bolstered by the Trump nominees. And I think that we tell ourselves this story. I tried to flick at the, this before where there's always this redemption story, right? It's always like, oh, but but Kavanaugh's really moving to the left and Barrett is actually really moderate. And like, look at the case of the swearing cheerleader list. You know, we find one or two cases where those justices voted at the center and we tell ourselves a story about how this is really 
fundamentally a centrist court. And you are completely right. Not only is there a major gun case on the docket that would massively expand gun rights post-Heller, right? And that was the case that suddenly invented the right to have a personal right to uh, uh, have a gun to protect yourself. This is going to expand that. We've got possibly an affirmative action case on the docket that would really has its sights on ending affirmative action in education. We have, as I said, this Mississippi uh, abortion case on the docket just last term, kind of unnoticed. The court absolutely went after unions as it's been doing very, very systematically in the last couple of years. So uh, attacking unions. And we're also seeing the, the, the court really unsettling the whole sort of world of administrative law, the whole world of uh, agencies and government agency and agency authority. And it sounds really boring and technical, but it essentially goes to the question of, you know, what can the EPA do? What can, you know, federal agencies do? And part of the sort of Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh project is going to be to do away with federal government authority. And so that's been eroded slowly, but pretty irrevocably. And again, I think that these are cases that we don't pay a ton of attention to because it seems wonky and boring, you know, going after, you know, the federal administrative state. But I think we're going to see through like fancy words like the non-delegation doctrine and things like that. We're going to really see the court chip, chip, chipping away at agencies' ability to regulate. And so I think those are the kinds of things I look at, in addition to which I think the big, big ticket right now is this conflict between religious liberty on the one hand and civil rights on the other. And those are the cases that start with the line of Hobby Lobby and the Little Sisters of the Poor. But now it's, you know, folks who don't like COVID restrictions. Those folks keep winning and winning and winning. And the groups that are losing and losing are women and uh, LGBTQ groups. And so I think we're going to really, really see this court put a big thumb on the scale of religious dissenters, always, always, I think, at the peril of civil rights and civil liberties. So that's coming, too, I think. So thank you, Daya. Barb has popped on. You know, I sort of thought we had about a minute left. But since Barb is here. I'd like to ask you the same question I just asked Dahlia. We've talked about the Supreme Court case with regard to abortion rights in Texas and the grim future for Roe v. Wade. But my last question was, given the extreme nature of this court, and, you know, I didn't say this, but, you know, the fact that they don't seem to care much about the Constitution, stare decisis, past approaches to the law, to the processes of the court, or even as several dissents have pointed out, you know, the truth much. What's your prognosis, Barb, just to to, to, to sort of add on to this for our final couple of minutes here? I am not optimistic about where the court is going to stand on certain issues or about its adherence to the rule of law. I think one of the things the court has to think about is not only does it want to do on what it wants to do on certain types of cases, but what that means for public confidence in the court. You know, for example, we had in this case, I, I thought Chief Justice Roberts got it just right, which was 
As the majority says, in their opinion, this case is procedurally complex. Yes, it is. And for that reason, we should grant a stay so that we have the benefit of full briefing and oral argument and the time to sort it out. And in the meantime, we preserve the status quo. And of course, the the test for that is likelihood of success on the merits and irreparable harm, as well as a couple of other things. But those are the ones that matter the most. Irreparable harm is absolutely the case here for a woman who needs an abortion today and whose constitutional rights are being violated every minute that passes. Likelihood of success on the merits, if you believe that Roe is good law and will continue to be a good law, then there should be very strong likelihood of success on the merits. For five justices to look at that test and say, I'm not granting a stay here, says to me that they don't think that there is a likelihood of success on the merits for those who are challenging this restriction. That says to me that we think Roe is not long for this world. So I worry about that. But even more, I worry about what it says about the rule of law. We are not supposed to have justices who handpick, I care about rights when it's religious liberty, for example, in California, when there was a similar request for a stay in a case involving religious liberty, they granted it. So when it's an issue we care about, we do grant stays. And when it's an issue we are hostile to, we allow this law to take effect. And I think that has a really corrosive effect on public confidence in the court. No doubt justices come to their jobs with different worldviews. And the presidents who select them select them in part because of the worldview that they have and they hope that they share. And so it's not surprising that sometimes we get 5-4 decisions, but they need to be principled. And I worry that in this instance, they are not. They are instead just advancing a particular political agenda. And you know, to take it to the extreme, this is no different from what ISIS does when it advances its vision for an Islamic state. We don't really care about the rule of law. We just want our side to win. We like Islam and we think everyone should practice Islam and everybody else who's in our way, just get out of it. And of course, they use violence to get their way. And we have folks in Texas and now in the Supreme Court who may be using the machinery of the law to achieve the same result. But it's the same thing. And it is, I think, anti-American. Well, I'm really glad that you could join us even for that summation uh, at the end of this discussion. We will return to these issues. Hopefully, we'll be able to do it at a time when Barb can join us for a little bit longer. But Dahlia, I also hope you'll come back. I, I thought it was great. I, I want to underscore both of you have podcasts. Don't you have a podcast now too, Barb? I do. It's called Sisters-in-Law with Joyce Vance, Jill Winebanks, and Kimberly Atkins. So that's a good one. And then Dahlia's is Amicus. And so, you know, I encourage you both to listen to those. And uh, we'll be returning to these issues again soon. In the meantime, thank you, Dahlia. Thank you, Barb. Thank you, Kavita, who is now off on MSNBC, I guess, filling Barb's seat there. And um, thanks to all for joining us. And if you want more on what we've got coming up, and we've got a lot coming up, go to the DSRnetwork.com. And if you're there and you like this kind of thing, click on membership and give us a little bit of uh, support. doesn't take much to, to make a big difference. It's not very safe out there with COVID. So take care of yourselves, be safe, and join us again soon. Bye-bye.